Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, uh, on page 1, in your pew Bibles, where you can follow along on the screens, where we're introduced to the God who is. And I'll, I'll be reading selected verses from Genesis 1, so you can follow along. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Verse 26. And then God said, let, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, for those of you um, who, are, who may be relatively new to the church, uh, my name is Dan Smith. We are kind of having a, a preaching carousel here the last few weeks, if you've been here. Um, a couple weeks, uh, Isaac Vineyard preached, and then last week, uh, Greg Doty, uh, and they've, they've done a wonderful job. Um, our senior pastor, Bruce O'Neill, is uh, having a sabbatical this summer. Um, so, so we are starting a new series of messages this morning that will take us through the rest of the summer. Uh, it's a series of messages titled, The God Who Is. And we'll be looking at different aspects of God. Some of our messages will focus on um, the person of God, what he's like. Some of our messages will have us focusing on the works of God, things that he has done. Um, but the, the hope is that, that together, uh, the whole series will help us to get a clearer picture of, of who our God is and, and how he loves us and how he interacts with, with us and, and the world that he's made. Um, today and next Sunday, we'll be looking at God as the giver of life. Um, 
we'll look at, at, at this morning, we'll, we'll particularly look at God as the, the creator of the physical world. And then next week, we'll, we'll spend a little bit more time looking at the fact that God is not only the creator of the physical world, but he's also the author of, of real life, of, of what we might call abundant life or eternal life. So, so he's, our, he's our creator in the sense that he makes physical life, but he's, there are others, other ways of, of evaluating life and, and, and seeing life. Um, I had a, a seminary professor who would, would often say that anytime you emphasize one thing, you, you automatically de-emphasize something else. And uh, for those of you, I just want to put you at ease. Um, my concern was I didn't want you to think that somehow I didn't value all of Genesis chapter 1. Um, or that, you know, you might think, oh, well, Dan likes the first two days of creation, but he doesn't like days 3, 4, and 5. Um, that's not the case at all. I just, what I was trying to to do for us without taking the, the whole time to read the entire chapter is to help us see that there that there are some patterns to Genesis chapter one. There's kind of a rhythm to it, um, and we're gonna we're gonna unpack that rhythm a little bit more as we go along here. But but what I what I really hope that today that we will see very clearly is is that God is is our Creator in a broad sense. But but there are there's a physical world that He has made. And then there is, there is also a spiritual world and, and a quality of, of life that, that his being our creator has an impact on. When, when you first talk about the book of Genesis, and particularly when you, when you read the first couple of chapters of the book of Genesis, there is a question that probably comes up more frequently than any other, and that's the question, how? How did God create or for some of us, that, that question is, is a little bit more nuanced. It's, well, how long did God take to create? And I understand that why we want to ask questions like that. It's an important question. Uh, we ask that kind of question because we want clarity. We want certainty. We, we, want, we want to understand how we came to be and, and what that process looked like. For some of us, we, we like to debate and we, we want our view to prevail in the debate. We want to win the argument, if you will. But the reason that, that I want us to look more deeply into this, this morning, uh, is not so much to ask the, the, to, and, and answer the question of how, but, but really more to, to dig into the questions of why. Because as important as the how questions are, I think the why questions are what really help us to understand God and the world that he has made around us. I know that, well, let me, let me say it differently. I don't know how my laptop computer was made. I'm not saying it's not important, but I'm just confessing to you, I don't know how my laptop computer was made. But I do know how to, I, I know what it's for. I know why it was made, and because I know why it's made, I've learned how to use it. And the more I've learned how to use it, the more insight that I've gained into the mind of the people who made it. So, here's why, here, here's what is very clear to me from this passage about how God created the world. God created the world by speaking into chaos, by the power of his word, 
He spoke into the void. He spoke into the darkness. He spoke into what was formless. And what came about because he spoke was cosmos. He spoke into chaos and created cosmos. He created order. He created substance. He created light and beauty. And so from, from our passage of Scripture this morning, what I hope that, that we can see about the physical world that God has created is four things. There's probably more than four things that we could learn from this, but I've come up with four. And so I, I hope that, that as we look at them, we will learn a great deal more about God himself. And so the four things that we'll look at are that the fact that the, that the created world is good, We'll look at this idea that the created world is limited or finite. We'll look at the created world being one or being unified. And then we'll look at at the created world. Um, I believe from this passage we learned that the created world is important. It has value, particularly to God. So let's start with, with the first one, which is that the created world is good. When we hear and, and see, what, what we're hearing and seeing in Genesis chapter 1 is a rhythm. There's a pattern. I alluded, this to, to, alluded to this at the very beginning. There are created elements. God made certain things. He, he set them up a certain way. But then, at the end of every day, there's, there's a refrain, if you will, that says, there was evening and that there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day. And this happens after each day, all six days in this way. And then mixed in within this rhythm, there there are what we might call benedictions, where, where it says that God saw that what he had made was good. In other words, in God's eyes, it was good. In fact, on the sixth day at the end, it says, in God's eyes, it was very good. These are benedictions. And so the rhythm that is found in Genesis chapter 1 is is actually a little different from from the patterns or the rhythm that we see in Genesis chapter 2 and and the chapters that follow that. So much so that Bible scholars believe that chapter 1 is actually a different genre from Genesis chapter 2 and following. That where chapter 2 is historical narrative. Chapters, if you read chapters 2 and 3 and you know, continue on reading in the book of Genesis, most Bible scholars believe that what you're reading is historical narrative. It's, it's describing what happened in history, what happened chronologically. This happened, then this happened. There's an order, there's a structure, there's a historicity to it. But, but in chapter 1, with the verses and the choruses, many scholars believe that, that chapter 1 is, is very likely something like a song or a poem. But one of the refrains that we hear that's repeated over and over, and I've, I've already mentioned this, is that in God's eyes it was good. And, and, and I want us to understand this and to, to, to feel the weight of this because I'm suggesting That the created world is good. What I find interesting is that that Eastern religions historically, and and we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit this morning about how how many ancient religions view 
the physical world because the, the Christian view in many ways is in contrast to the ways that other cultures and other um, religious approaches have seen the physical world. But, but in ancient Eastern religions, there's a tendency to view the physical world as an illusion, to see it as, as something that's not real. At least it's not ultimately real. So you need to go into the mind. In, in the Eastern world, you have to go into the mind in order to get to true truth, to find true reality, and then with the mind to gain power to deny the physical because the, the physical is an illusion. It's not real. So you have to be able to deny it. As real as it feels, they would say, you have to use the power of the mind to deny the physical world. This is where we get ideas like this. Mind over body. Mind over matter. These are not Christian ideas. These are, these are really Eastern, ancient Eastern religious ideas. And then you have historically Western religions, like, like religions that have their roots in, in Greece and Rome, where their tendency was to view the physical realm as bad or evil. The physical realm is, is not only something to be avoided, something to be spurned, but in actuality they view the physical realm as something to be escaped. Not only in this life do you, do you look at the physical realm as something evil and you want to stay away from it, but they even viewed ideas like salvation as being a deliverance out of the physical realm. So, so the spiritual realm is the good, it's the virtuous, but the physical realm is bad, it's evil. Judaism, and, and really Christianity, is the only religion in which the physical and the spiritual coexist for all eternity. The physical and the spiritual progress into eternity in Christianity. And where both the physical and the spiritual are viewed as good. God created us as physical beings and he declared it to be good. He, he said, what I've made is very good. So, so that's the point. The point of, of this first point in the message is that the physical world, according to scripture, is a good thing. And what that means is that it is therefore okay and appropriate for us to enjoy physical life. And we'll, we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit more as we go. The second, the second big idea that, that I want us to, to consider this morning is this idea that the created world is limited. It's finite. In a lot of ancient religions, creation is mingled or it's confused with God or with a deity. For example... In, in many ancient religions, the sun is also a god. The moon is also a deity. In fact, just about everything in all creation has a deity associated with it, such that it is either a god itself or it is associated with a god. The sea either is a god or has a god, just like the land and fire and almost every other kind of element in the world. But Genesis says that there's only one God and that that God has made everything in creation. In other words, the Creator, God, is separate from 
the creation. They're not, they're not the same. They're separate. And for this reason, creation is not to be worshipped. In the scriptures, we don't worship creation. We worship the creator. We're, we're amazed at creation. We, we're in awe of it. But we don't worship it. We, we look at it and it points us to the one who made it. Only God is to be worshipped. I think there are, there are two tendencies, two erroneous tendencies that human beings have tended to, to take in response to, to the created order. One is often referred to as asceticism, and the other is often referred to as hedonism. I think they're both errors, by the way, but let, but let me just unpack them for you briefly so that you can recognize them. Because ascetics view the physical world as bad or evil, they withdraw from it. They say, that's no good, I'm going to separate myself from the physical world. Therefore, they don't enjoy it. They don't appreciate good food. They don't very often have a good sense of humor. They don't tend to view physical intimacy as something that's, that's, that's to be valued or enjoyed. It's only for procreation, but then as soon as you're done procreating, then, you know, that's, that's not something to be enjoyed anymore. It's, it's basically a, a view that says the highest virtue, if, if you might say that purity is the highest virtue, well, then the highest virtue is connected to abstaining from the physical. That's asceticism. Hedonism, and, and when I talk about hedonism, I would suggest to you that the vast majority of modern-day Western people, like Americans, most modern secularists today, are engaging for, in terms of a practical approach to life in hedonism. Hedonism says, seek pleasure from the physical. Seek fulfillment from the physical. Because it's all we have. The physical is all there is. And so if you're going to have fulfillment in this life, then you're going to have to find it in and through the physical. And so what, what it says is it says you need wealth. You need success. You need these things. You need comfort. You need to be free of physical pain. Why? Because this world is all there is. The physical world is all there is. And so if you're going to have a good life, then you're going to have to find it through the comforts and the pleasures of the physical world. Christianity is neither asceticism nor hedonism. Scripture says, don't reject the physical world because God made it good. But Scripture also says, you and I don't need the physical world. Now, I, I understand what you, you know. Okay, yes. Do we need air? Yes. But, but, but it's from a, from a satisfaction standpoint, from a, from a living life to the full standpoint. You and I, according to Scripture, don't need the physical world. It's not all we have. We have God. Jesus said, you shall not live by bread alone. What did he mean by that? Did he mean stop eating? No, of course not. 
It doesn't even mean stop enjoying good food. I don't think he's saying that either. But I think what he's saying is stop living as if that is where life comes from. Stop living as if this physical world is is where life is. And it's the source of fulfillment and satisfaction. Food is a metaphor for living this this physical life with all of its appetites. And so he's not saying don't eat. He's not saying don't drink. Don't don't enjoy life. That's not it. But he's saying don't pursue these things like they are where life comes from. Because they're not. Life comes from God and knowing Him. The third big idea is that the created world is one. It's unified. And the reason that I think this is important for us to consider is, and again, I'm going back to ancient ways that that human beings have tended to view the physical world and physical life. But but the ancient Greeks, which, which, by the way, I believe have been very influential on us, they said they they said that that life is dualistic. You have the physical realm and you have the spiritual realm, and they're separate. And they pitted them against each other. They said, you you know, if you're one is good, one is evil. The physical is bad, the spiritual is good. And so what they did is they called people to aspire to the spiritual and to spurn the physical. To be virtuous, you had to choose one, the spiritual, and be devoted to it. And you had to turn away and deny the physical. Personally, I think that there are many Christians, even today, who are influenced by that way of thinking. And I don't think it's biblical. I think the reason that many Christians do have this dualistic view of life is because of the presence of good and evil. That's undeniable. There is good and evil in this world. And we look at that and we say, well, how do we, how do we deal with that? We can't deny it. But to say that evil is associated with the physical and good is associated with the spiritual, I think that is way too simplistic. And I don't think it's consistent with what the scriptures describe about the world. Many of the sins that you and I commit are not physical. They're spiritual. Because we love the wrong things. We believe the wrong things. We put our hope in the wrong things. That happens before we ever do anything with our body. Most of the sins that we commit on our body start in our heart. They start in spiritual things. So it can't be as simple as saying that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. Here's what is biblical. All human beings are created in the image of God. And that means that all human beings are created in a good image. What this means is that all human beings are reflecting the image of God. All all human beings have an image that is good, and that means that religious or not, we can learn from other people. See, many many Christians think, well, I can only learn true things from other Christians. Why would we say that? All human beings are made in the image of God, and the Scripture says that the image of God is good in all people. 
So I think that implies that, that we can learn amazing truths from other people, whether they believe the same as we do or not. It also means that all human beings can create beautiful, beautiful pieces of art. All human beings are capable of making incredible medical discoveries. Christianity doesn't have a corner on that market. It even means that irreligious people can at times be more virtuous than I am. I won't say that about you. You'll have to decide that for yourself. But I can tell you, I can go out into my neighborhood and I can meet people who aren't Christians at all and they can be more virtuous than me. But what is also biblical is that we are all fallen. We are all contaminated by a sinful nature. There is something that has happened to our physical DNA and our spiritual DNA, if you will, such that by nature we all now have a predisposition towards sin and toward rebellion against our Creator. The point is that we were created spiritually and physically good. And it's also true, biblically, that our corruption has impacted us both physically and spiritually. And therefore, what we need, and oh, by the way, what God has provided, is a solution that addresses us both spiritually and physically. So what's the solution? Well, that brings us to the fourth point. That is that the created world is valuable, it's important. John chapter 3 verse 16 says, For God so loved the cosmos. I know your English Bible doesn't say that, but that's the Greek word that your English Bible is translating when it says world. For God so loved the cosmos that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Not only does the Bible promise that whoever believes in Christ will have eternal life, but the Scriptures also promise that Jesus will return. And when He returns, He will bring with Him a renewal of all things. You see, when when God sent His Son into the world, He wasn't just saying, I'm going to save the humans. He says, I'm coming... Because I love all of my creation, not just the people, but all of it, the the, the cosmos. And so his plan for our salvation includes it all. When Jesus comes back, he'll bring about a renewal of all things. And if if you've ever attended a a funeral that I have uh, officiated, then very likely you've heard me say this before. But but I, I find it incredibly fascinating then in the book of Revelation, what is described when Jesus comes back at the end at the end of all things, at the renewal of all things, the picture that we're given in the book of Revelation is the pinnacle of heaven, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven and resting on the earth. By the way, the scriptures talk about new heavens and new earth. But the new Jerusalem comes down and rests on the earth 
And the summary statement that is given is, from this point forward, the dwelling of God is with men. Not males, humans. Now think about this. If the Greeks and the Romans were right, that salvation is escaping from this physical realm and going to to a place that is only spiritual, then wouldn't you expect the book of Revelation to summarize the rest of all time being, and now, from this point on, the dwelling of the humans will be with God. But that's not what he says. From this point on, at the renewal of all things, New Jerusalem rests on the earth. The dwelling of God will be with men. God created the world good. And yet it and we have been corrupted by sin and death. But God is committed to it. He loves it. And He is committed to us, and therefore, so should we be committed to it. So should we be committed to the cosmos and the people that populate it, that God has made. Let me, let me close with this. Psalm 19, verse 1, is, is in your order of worship at the beginning. I included it as one of the verses to, to consider as you prepared for worship. But Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims His handiwork. The psalmist is saying that creation is singing to God. Creation is declaring the glory of God. In other words, creation is glorifying God. Do you realize that? Creation is worshiping its maker. And do you know what God's response is? I touched on this at the very beginning. His response is benediction. God spoke the world into being by the power of His Word. But then He spoke again. After He had made everything, He spoke again. He blessed what he had made, saying, it is good. Here's what I think. I think you and I need this. We need this benediction. We are longing to have someone say of us, we are good. In fact, I would dare say that we give our entire lives to the pursuit of that affirmation. It's like a drug. On the cross, think about this. Jesus received not a benediction, but a malediction. Jesus hung on the cross and heard from his Father, Depart from me. I never knew you. Now you say, well, Dan, I've never read that in the Bible. It doesn't say that. Okay, granted. But as he hung on the cross, 
he called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the response of someone who has had the God of the universe turn away and say, Away from me. Jesus received the malediction so that you and I could hear the benediction. You are my child, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We seek this everywhere. Think about it. We seek it when we're young from our parents. Some of us, even if we're not young, we still seek it from our parents. But I know that when we're young, we all seek it from our parents. We seek it from our peers. We want to be accepted. We want to be in. We want people to like us. We want people to point to us and say, you know what, they're really cool. They have really got it figured out. If you want to know, if you want to meet somebody who has their life together, and this is what I long for, I long to overhear someone saying to somebody else, you want to meet somebody that really has their act together, you got to meet Dan. And you do too. We seek it from our bosses. We seek it from our coaches. We seek it from our teachers. We seek it from our spouses. In fact, most of us seek a spouse in the first place because we think that getting a spouse is a lifetime subscription to affirmation. We seek it from success. We seek it from romance. But it's not complete. It disappoints, doesn't it? It never fulfills the way we had hoped it would. The only benediction, the only affirmation that will truly satisfy is the affirmation of our Creator. The giver of life. And it's only found in Christ. The one who was rejected so that we might be affirmed. Put your hope in him. Let me pray for us. Lord, we, we praise you. Because you are the maker of heaven and earth. You are the giver of life. You're the maker of the physical world. You're the maker of the spiritual world. And you have made us to be both physical and spiritual. And you declared it all to be good. But both the physical and the spiritual have been corrupted by sin and death. And so what we need is a solution that addresses our physical and spiritual issues. And you have done just that. You have given. Because you have loved your cosmos, you have loved all that you have made, you have given your one and only Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He received the malediction so that we might be affirmed, so that we might be your children, sons and daughters of the living God whom you love, with whom you are well pleased. Lord, we need that. We need to be your children. We need to know the love 
of our Creator, of our Heavenly Father. So Lord, help us to see our need and to put our hope in You. Not not in all the other things that we tend to put our hope in. Not in all the things that we tend to look for affirmation from. But to rest in You and to find in You all that we need and all we will ever need. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.